Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. It's so great to have all of you tune us in and turn us on. Just give me a minute here. I'm just moving things around. Um, I have been so, Benny, I've been so looking forward to the conversation we're about to have with Mitch, Mitch Horowitz. Um, Now, why? Uh, Because, you know, I, I think about, I think about what his life childhood must have been like, and then I think about mine. And then I think, wow, I bet we have like a whole bunch of things in common. So I'm really excited today. I mean, I am going to talk about one body of work that I have in front of me. I'm just going to like show you like that. But there are other things we're going to talk about when we look at the world we live in. And you all that listen to our four o'clock show, The Psychic and the Doc, you've heard us cover a wide range of things with Mark, Mark Anthony. And one of the things you've you've heard us talk about, especially when the Pentagon Papers were, um, what do I want to say, revealed, albeit really modestly. I mean, honestly, I don't even understand why they, you know, 1980. I mean, what what happened before 80? Why didn't you want to share any of that? But there are other things that I want to talk about today. I want to ask you all this question before we talk about my very special guest today, because if you're Mitch. You are this amazing historian that looks at alternative spirituality, but I don't know how alternatives it's getting to be much anymore, but he talks about the mysticism. He talks about the esoteric. You know, he takes things that an Emma Curtis Hopkins may have talked about and brings it to the forefront. And it's so interesting because this morning in my reading, I happened to pull out three books. Uh, I go to my shelf and I don't know what the books are. And I pull out The Law and the Promise by Neville. And then I pull out one of my other favorite people. And I pull out a vital concept of personal growth. You see this little book here, Manly P. Hall. And so for most people that come and look at my library, they're like, wow, like something's happening to you. But here's what I think is happening. Whether you're Mitch and you've written Uncertain Places, essays on occult and outsider experiences, one of the things I'm struck by, I'm struck by this now, and Mitch is going to jump in on this. I am struck by how conversations like this used to be being had by like a little percent, not even like a percentage. You know, maybe Yuri talked about it, like, I don't know, over here, Casey, maybe somebody over there, like 0.001, right? Today, what are we focused on? If the latest version of America Horror Story, New York City, has anything to do with today's conversation, 
and how people are creating what once was known as the unreal or the surreal and tapping it into our actual lives, this is really the explosion we're seeing. And so today we're going to just peel some of this apart because what is it that we can learn from what Mitch has done? What is it that so many people, and I'm not just talking about the people that you may be thinking alternative, holistic. No, I'm talking about our mainstream pop culture who cannot get enough of shows that are out there, whether it's television, live streaming series, it doesn't matter what it is. They can't get enough. I think Netflix broke this weekend when they aired Wednesday, the character from the Adams family. So what is happening? Are we enthralled or are we reconnecting with parts of ourselves that maybe we have forgotten? Today, we're gonna dig a whole lot deeper and nobody, nobody will ever replace, I don't even think I should say her name, the series they did on America Horror Story when they did the whole coven thing. Mitch, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Um, if you're like me, and I would think like you, there's been this life of curiosity. And we are now talking about things that if you go back in time, and I'm not talking very long ago either, but if you if you went back in time and you started to talk about them, they'd either lock you up or they would stone you or like so many of the people that said, oh, my God, I saw a UFO. They would just put you in some institution where you sit today. How have you seen the landscape of your passion and purpose change? Well, I think there has been a remarkable change just over the last few years and it wasn't long ago that I personally resisted talking about in a third wave occult revival or a, a, a shift in awareness or attitudes towards occult or esoteric topics. But frankly, and you were you were alluding to some of this, I think when the Pentagon videos of UFOs were exposed in 2017 in the New York Times and other sources, uh, we started to see the UFO thesis go mainstream. And in a certain sense, you could say that UFOs are only indirectly related to some of the topics that we're talking about. And yet at the same time, these revelations poke holes in the straight story. And when you start to poke holes in the straight story, other holes appear and people begin to consider questions of extra physical experience and exceptions to the model of reality that we grew up with, which are feelings that a lot of people harbor in private, <clears throat> but to see it discussed in public, in opinion-shaping uh, organs, whether it be places like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the New Yorker, suddenly there's a change afoot. And when we say the UFO thesis has gone mainstream, it's moving like a freight train and it's not oh stopping. And usually things happen in a kind of context. And I think today we are seeing not only discussion of UFOs, but a discussion of the extra physical nature of consciousness. I often tell readers, 
if you think my assessments of what's coming out of quantum mechanics or quantum theory sounds far out, read Scientific American. I'm conservative in my descriptions. Uh, we're seeing a, a wide opening in terms of uh, extra physical considerations today. Yeah. One of the things you say in your book, and I, I, uh, I, I love that I get to get a copy of your book and highlight it and write on it. But one of the things I, I, I love, and it's in the chapter you wrote, is your mind a technology for utopia? And there's the first thing out of the gate that you say that is really the focus of everything I think we're going to talk about today. And it says, we are faced today with unprecedented possibilities for how to participate in life. Yes. Never thought. I mean, I've been doing this show. Benny and I have been together 20 years doing this show. One of the first positive talk shows ever. I was laughed at. I didn't care. It wasn't called this. It was called something called crust busting. But this statement you made now compared to when we started, and Benny and I, we joke about this a little bit, because I used to have to bring in binders, not an internet, not this here. But how do... How do these options, how do these possibilities, Mitch, from where you sit and from this book, how do they help us to a better understanding and or hinder us mm -hmm. to a better understanding of life? Well, one of the ways that we get hindered, of course, is when things get rendered into a kind of shorthand and people <clears throat> feel that it's just a question of finding a magic bullet that's going to solve everything. And maybe this magic bullet lies in the direction of uh, this particular practice or lies in the direction of uh, chanting or lies in the direction of meditating. And the fact is, our problems are complex in life. Life is a complexity and its solutions are a complexity. What I want people to understand from all walks of life is that you can work on many different fronts in terms of trying to create a life that makes you feel at home in your own skin. And that includes experimenting with positive mind techniques. That includes, if you so wish, experimenting with radical forms of prayer, with chanting, with meditation, with considerations of retrocausality, something I write about in this book and Daydream Believer, whether something that you do in the so-called future can affect what you experience in the so-called present. And it's not as far out as it sounds. No, because it we, we know that time is conceptual. We've known since Einstein that linear time is not an absolute. Time bends in certain circumstances. And this marries to ideas that have come out of the last 80 or 90 years of classical experiments and quantum mechanics not even to get into questions of academic ESP and psychical research, which I care very deeply about. And I want people to realize that they have within them potentials, extra physical potentials that can address the problems of day-to-day -day life, which doesn't free any of us from dealing with those problems also on the terms that the world expects. But you can bring a whole recipe book to what you're doing in life, draw from it as you wish, do so in private and approach life with a complexity of solutions, including spiritual ones. And by spiritual, I simply mean extra physical. I love it. Okay, let's use it. Let's do a real-time example. Okay, Mitch and I did not plan this. This is not staged. We have never physically met like this here, right? I have his book. I read his book. You all have seen me. Benny, you know this to be true. Benny and I have seen... We have seen things happen in the studio 
that if we were to describe them today, people would look at us. We, we've had guests in the studio that go into some strange trance in the middle of a show, dead silence, and out of their mouth come spoons and gemstones, and not a single one of them is wet. So let's just hold that. But how is it you and I are wearing black and white today? <laughs> you also mentioned Neville Goddard. You pulled Law and the Promise off your shelf. I have a tattoo of Neville right over here. He's a, a real hero to me and uh, loved him for many years. Yep. Uh, there are a lot of congruities in life. <laughs> Jung called them synchronicities without ever defining what a synchronicity is. And it, it's very interesting how you start thinking of something and suddenly you discover people who will meet you halfway, help you, have something to offer that you're desperately and deeply looking for. And sometimes the emotions involved are so extraordinary that it goes beyond the charts of any actuarial table. There's no statistical model that can account for how uh, rare or unusual or synchronous an event it is. And I think people across all walks of life have that experience. Yeah. And what I love about this, and I was really struck by it uh, mm -hmm. because I had two two calls earlier today, starting at 430 this morning, and I had a pink sweater on. And oh. for some reason, <laughs> I can't explain, but we're going to explain <laughs> it. For some reason, went back into my room and I got plenty of clothes. And there we are. But there's so much here that I want to make sure we get to from this particular book. So let me just talk about this for you for a minute, because the reason I brought up the matching black and white, I mean, people think that we staged this, we did not. <laughs> um, but this idea of uncertain places, right? I, I am so struck by the power of imagination. I have lived my life. I'm a kid from the Bronx. I had a rough childhood. Um, my escape was Godzilla, the giant behemoth, comic books that now are being made into movies. But there's something positive about that that got me to where I am today. When I read your book, my sense is people are longing to be validated in a lot of the areas in your book and what you actually teach. And they're trying to get it out of the many different things in our pop culture. How does this particular book for you, how does this particular book bring everything together in a way that people may be able to feel affirmed and not mm. crazy, Mitch? Well, I hope that the arguments in the book strike people as persuasive and careful and critical. I'm, uh, I call myself a believing historian. I participate in many of the movements I write about. And in fact, most historians of spirituality are believing historians, but they don't like to say so because they worry that it'll seem to compromise their critical judgment. But on the contrary, I think actually being part of certain spiritual movements allow you to stand at their center, understand the values that emanate from them, and also understand the shortfalls, understand the promise, the potential, and also, frankly, the failures and the, the deep gaps and glitches in those movements. And I hope that in this book, there's a non-orthodox language that allows people to participate in alternative spiritual ideas without having to 
alter a sense of their own values of life. I think so frequently people want to achieve things in career, in finance, in household, in creativity, in expression, and they're placed into a bind by the alternative spiritual culture that feeds and encourages all that, at the same time tells you, be non-attached, be non-identified, don't get caught up in illusion or the world of matter. And frankly, I think it's all just one thing. I think it's all just one thing. No one needs to be fixed or corrected in terms of what he or she wants out of life. What they need is to feel a fuller sense of self-expression, I believe. I'm telling you, I got so excited when I was reading your book. I read it and then I read it again earlier this morning. And I was so excited when I got to the chapter and you just mentioned it. So I want to get into it a little bit. You know, in the chapter down with the blue bloods, I <laughs> I was so struck by the conversation around non-attachment. I was so struck by the messaging that we get sometimes from, how should I call it? spiritual messages or other messages now non-attachment and non-identification you're looking at somebody that researched and published on broken promises 10 years it is very hard for me to have any common sense around non-attachment because almost every woundedness we have everything we see has an association. Do you know where I'm going with this? See, yeah. on the one hand, we're being told, oh, don't attach. I mean, don't, atta don't attach. What do you mean don't attach? I mean, if, I, I don't understand how we were given what we were given here on the inside and then told not to use it. Can you explain from your perspective? Because for me, this chapter sets up the rest of the book, which we're going to talk about. I appreciate it. We who have grown up in Western culture, are taught to think in terms of opposites. Probably comes out of Aristotle, this idea that there's true and there's false and there's attached and there's non-attached and there's personality and there's essence and there's higher and lower. And we think in these coordinates all the time. And we often find ourselves on a spiritual path where on one hand, we're trying to produce these things that we want in our material lives as if, as they're given to us. On the other hand, we're also told that we shouldn't be thinking in terms of the limited material world, the goodies and the baubles and the shiny objects of life. My contention is it's all one thing. How would we even know where one begins and ends? Where does personality begin and end? Yeah. Where does a sense of the infinite versus a sense of the quotidian begin and end? These are all one thing. They're all part of life. And I believe that they're they're part of the search for self-expression, broadly defined. And that's going to have a different meaning to every single one of your listeners. And I applaud that. I applaud that. And I don't feel that the individual is incapable, the mature individual is incapable of determining what will make him or her happy in life. And I don't think anybody should be burdened with there being suggestions, oh, that's superficial, or that's an attachment, and so forth and so on. I think that the individual is capable of naming that which will make him or her feel happy, fulfilled, comfortable, at home, and no one should be able to take that away from you. And there's no division, in my estimation, between the so-called spiritual and the tactile lives that we lead. It's all one thing. It's all one thing. That wish to demarcate 
is that kind of binary thinking or thinking in opposites that doesn't suit every area of life. Yeah, I'm so glad you talked about this. And the reason I'm glad I brought it up now and the reason I'm glad you put it where you did in the book is because without this conversation, it's going to be hard for people to make sense of that in their world that they're okay. You see, we're we're so told we're not okay for so many reasons, right? You know, my mother, uh, before she took her life, had a very, very, what's the word? I mean, she could have read this book way back right? Because she lived in that world you just described, right? Mm -hmm. But if we truly believe in the idea of non-attachment, and there are some people that do, it is very hard for them, whether you are a Christian pastor or you're like my table tennis player, you know, 99 million deities of Hindu or Sarah Main, who has taught me Sanskrit, she teaches it. It is hard to explain our history and explain those people that walk the earth and demonstrate non-attachment. It's, I can't find it, but no. yet we're stuck on this, aren't we? Yes. And it's funny. I have a, a, a good friend who is an Aikido instructor and he's very dedicated to that path. And Aikido is a tradition that comports really well with Buddhism. It comes out of Japanese culture. Yeah. It has very deep and close ties to Zen Buddhism. And he's been on this path for a long, long time. And he's a very serious guy. And I said to him, listen, friend to friend, you've been doing this a long time. You've studied in Japan. You've studied in the U.S. and different parts of the world. Have you ever met a teacher, an abbot, a priest, uh, a, a martial artist who you felt was a, a realized person? And he said to me, no, no. And I appreciated the bluntness and the simplicity of that answer. It, it matched my own experience. I wasn't fishing for that answer. But the fact is, we, when a, when a person enters a situation where he or she feels uh, weak or challenged or needful, whatever that situation may be, that's when you're seeing the, the core individual. You're not seeing the core individual in circumstances of familiarity, comfort, where the internet is working and, and their belly is full and they know that there's a refrigerator of food waiting for them. But when that is stripped away, you see a commonality in the human situation. You see a, a sometimes a, a, a childish desperation. And that's not something to be ashamed of. Yeah. It's something to come to terms with. And I frankly, rarely use uh, terms like enlightened or realized or awakened. I, I think that that those terms have gotten drilled into us by familiarity, and we see those as a kind of uh, a goal. And I think that can be very limiting and very fixating to the individual who may have his or her own language and ideas and concepts for what they wish for in life. And I want the search to be the project of the individual, him or herself, and not to have that taken away because uh, a, a valued piece of spiritual literature, whether it's Western, whether it's Eastern, says that the path lies in this direction. Verify it, verify it. How do I know that the path lies in that direction? Some of the most valuable moments I've had in life have been, have occurred when I've been on the receiving end of some nostrum or some piece of familiar advice. And I've suddenly stopped and said, wait a minute, how do I know that that's true? 
yes, it may appear in the New Testament, it may appear in the Bhagavad Gita, it may appear in the Dhammapada, but how do I know that that's true? Familiarity is not truth, and we have to really remember that. And I think that capable individuals, mature individuals are able to articulate their own conception of truth, and they'll probably feel, in my estimation, a lot more at home within that. I hope so, because we're going to take a short break when we come back. I, you mentioned commonality. I'm going to get right to it. Uh, the New Age and uh, Gnosticism, I want to talk to you about that, because it really sets us up for really what I call a rebirth. I like your word resurrection better. There's a, n a number of things. But before we do that, Mitch, a couple of things. How do people plug into what you're doing? I know you're doing events. How do they get a copy of your book? How do they stay connected with you? Because we're only talking about one thing today, but you're like, <laughs> you've got this all covered. <laughs> Well, my website is MitchHorowitz.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at MitchHorowitz23, Instagram at MitchHorowitz. And Uncertain Places is available anywhere you buy your books. Now, I want to answer one of my listeners, Benny, and we'll go to break. Jerry, uh, thank you, Jerry. You must be on the East Coast. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I get these text messages that are like, okay. So everything's abbreviated. Um, thank <laughs> Dr. Pat. Are you going to do a show series on, <laughs> I might now, on the America Horror Story New York City, uh, the latest version of America Horror Story? I'm really thinking about it because it is very interesting from both a socio, a paranormal, and a modern day contemporary view of secrets. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. In body, in power, in soul. Activate the spirit within you in deep conversations of power, faith, grace, love, and forgiveness. On Soul Inspired Reflections, Ascension, a humble awakening of the heart. Join me, your host, Gina Libido, every second Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific of TransformationTalkRadio.com. And find that even the chaos of your world makes sense and adds meaning and purpose. Make a choice, be inspired, take action. For more information, go to soulinspired.org. That's soul-inspired.org. Are you looking for a way to break old habits that are holding you back from reaching your true potential and living the life you deserve? Well, look no further than Dr. Loretta Billups. She is a clinician and a relationship and mental health coach that will assist you with reaching your purpose. She will hold you accountable so that your desires are now a reality. Connect with Dr. B at cultivatingyourlife.com and find your path today. That's cultivatingyourlife.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Pat. I'm the host of The Dr. Pat Show, and I am the creator of The Transformation Network, doing what we do in the world of positive radio, informed, educated, positive media. Independent radio hosts and independent networks have been the face of positive messaging over the past decade. So all of us here have decided we're going to put together an independent network that is going to enable people to bring their positive message of hope, inspiration, and conscious action to the forefront. Help us create a future of amazing, uplifting stories that can be told so we can tell our children and they can tell their children of what hope and conscious action is all about. I want to thank you all for tuning us in, turning us on on TransformationTalkRadio.com. It is time to get inspired to take action in your life. Tune in to Emotional Elevation with me, Susan Denae. We are identifying, understanding, and treating our crazy one episode at a time. We all have crazy in our lives. 
The thing that sets us apart is how we deal with it. And I've got you covered. Enjoy your journey. You are worth it. Visit SusanDenae.com. That's D-E-N-E-E.com. What if you could enter a sacred vortex of love and beauty infused with the power of the earth and ascended masters? Join myself, Dr. Georgia Herrera and Dr. Sharon Martin in the the Sacred Sacred Magic Magic Show. Bring in the mystical and sacred for healing, airing every third Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. You too can have your health and life challenges melt away. Join now and feel your heart open up to the answers to your most important questions. Tune into the Life Strategy Show with your life strategy mentor, Lolita Smith, and say yes to bringing prosperity and success to your future right here and right now. Life is a picture of your mind, and Lolita is here to help you imagine it. Say goodbye to the strings of the past that have been holding you back for far too long. Rise up with Lolita and say yes to the solutions, prosperity, and unlimited possibility. Visit LifeStrategyMentor.com. That's LifeStrategyMentor.com. Are you looking for a way to break old habits that are holding you back from reaching your true potential and living the life you deserve? Well, look no further than Dr. Loretta Billups. She is a clinician and a relationship and mental health coach that will assist you with reaching your purpose. She will hold you accountable so that your desires are now a reality. Connect with Dr. B at cultivatingyourlife.com and find your path today. That's cultivatingyourlife.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I am really excited. Okay, let me just hold it up here. Do you all see it right there? Probably backwards. It's called uh, Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experience. My very special guest today is Mitch Horowitz. And again, um, you know, look, he's an award-winning author, but he's so much more. And I really encourage you, if you're in this place where you are that you are that one that steps into the world of possibilities, even if the things on the outside tell you not to, if, you, if you're curious about things that are unexplained, that are uncertain, if you've really held yourself hostage because of what other people have said about the way you think or the way you feel, get a hold of Mitch, plug into what he's doing because part of this journey can be so lonely when you think you are the only one that has seen UFOs have been locked up for it only to find out two years ago, wow, nothing really wrong with you. But that's just a small part of it. Mitch, again, please give your website. What do you got going on for events? Do you have anything coming up? I do. My website is MitchHorowitz.com. And in February, I'm teaching a four-part class on parapsychology or academic study of ESP and psychical phenomena uh, for the Theosophical Society. And I'm really excited about that. You can find that on social media. Find it on my website. We're going to have to get you, Mark and I are going to have to get you to come on to our Thursday at four show. It's the psychic and the doc. And I have to tell you, a lot of this I've been a skeptic about for for a while. But when I hear what Mark does live on air, my jaw drops. And the same thing when I read a book like this and I read other things you've done. This is so freeing for people that don't have to be worried literally to be burned at the stake, but you might be in other ways. But let's talk about this next part, new age. I I love what you say in here, terms of commonality. And you just referenced that term before. 
let's tell people what you mean by that, because this is really cool. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I'm very aware that in many precincts of our culture, the term new age is used almost as an insult or an epithet. It's supposed to connote everything that's fuzzy or fickle or trendy about spiritual culture. But I use the term new age very freely. I apply it to myself. I define new age very simply as a, a radically ecumenical culture of therapeutic spirituality. That's all. That's how the term was used when it first came into popularity in the 1970s. Yeah. And I continue to use it today and I continue to use it to describe myself because I don't think that we should cede terms to their critics uh, because that term is used frequently in a negative way in mainstream media doesn't mean that it lacks historical integrity. And there are many such terms that I continue to use, whether it be occult or ESP or new age, that I feel have been with us for a long time, have a definite meaning, were coined by people who themselves were part of the seeking community. And I don't think we should give those terms up. So I have an essay in the book, uh, which is based on a talk I gave at Rice University, defending the new age. I don't think that this idea that people are exploring, weaving in and out of different spiritual tra traditions is some aberrant thing that should be criticized. If people want to call me a purveyor of cafeteria religion, they're entirely welcome to. Humanity has been participating in so-called cafeteria religion since the dawn of time, since we began traveling outside of our own villages and borders. We've been borrowing from, incorporating, remaking religious ideas. These things are not anybody's property. These things are methods and techniques and tools to experiment with in the search. And so call me new age, call me a purveyor of cafeteria religion, right on. <laughs> oh, look, I'll tell you what, I was going to say this. I don't know what got into me like years ago when What the Bleep came out in The Secret, but I did a show called Jesus, the founder of the new age movement. <laughs> it became, it, you know, it became, and this was before we had all the social media and stuff. And I love doing it and, and I love the exploration. I didn't really make a definitive answer, but I but I looked at the angst that was happening around the new the the term new age. And you know, I I just didn't quite understand the controversy because we have had new age miracles, let's call them, or new age essences throughout and uh, one of the things that i love about this we can find commonality in things but we don't look do we no and and we get very hung up on labels and not wanting to be called names i remember many years ago when i was called new age for the first time i took umbrage at it and i thought to myself new age no i'm into comparative religion and i realized very quickly that no matter what vocabulary I used, I was going to get called that no matter what. And so I embraced it. And I felt so much more relaxed in the profoundest sense when I just embraced it and thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to use blunt language. And I really don't care what somebody calls me. And I discovered, of course, that the concepts and the founders of New Age in the modern sense were doing a lot of things that I really cared about and agreed with. And as you pointed out, 
this is as old as the religious or the spiritual search itself. Yeah. So yeah. many of our religions are combinative, and that includes Christianity, incorporating ideas from the ancient nature-based traditions, incorporating ideas from Judaism, contemporary Christianity, incorporating ideas from other Eastern traditions. This is the nature of our human situation. You know, some people groove to reading the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, and I say, wonderful, that's terrific. Well, Marcus also worshiped Jupiter. You don't have to worship Jupiter in order to groove to Stoic philosophy. Is that new age? Well, you're cherry picking, you know? I mean, it's not cherry picking, it's, 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 it's syncretic. It's combining things from other cultures and outlooks in a way that might be meaningful in your life, and it's as old as human history. Okay, just I'm just going to make a statement. Jupiter is my ruling planet. I pay attention. Right to on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so did Marcus. <laughs> Jupiter, you're like right now, activated right now in the month we're in. Um, the other thing you talk about, and I want to really talk about this too, because it really sets us up to talking about how to get to where we are. And we've been doing that throughout the show. Um, there's a chapter on suffering and limits of magic. But at the same time in the chapter, I love that you're talking about the idea of thought and mind and Neville, Neville Goddard, which we talked about earlier today. Um, there's this interesting revolt from a large population of people. Let me just phrase it like this, about the power of the mind. Yes. Okay. I, I don't know what else to call it. Revolt is good. But I got to tell you, for me, it works. I train this, but I train my heart as well. Where are we in the where are we in the realm of our limitations from your perspective? Well, I, I love the new thought movement and I'm part of the new thought movement. The idea that thoughts are causative is at the very basis of my work. It's at the very basis of my search. And it may very well be that consciousness is the ultimate arbiter of reality. And I believe for various reasons that's true. At the same time, we experience many, many intervening laws and forces. For something to be a law, it, it has to be constant. So water is always H2O, but water can be a, a vapor, a solid or a liquid, depending on surrounding circumstances. I don't see why a law of consciousness should be any different. It's a natural fact that forces will alter and change based on surrounding circumstances like gravity. We have to deal with the intervening laws and forces, the countervailing forces, the complexities of this particular plane that we occupy. And that includes physical decay. That includes suffering. That includes demise of these bodies. That includes any number of countervailing events that occur in life. So I don't exactly like to think in terms of there being one overriding mental super law. There's a lot of laws and forces in our lives. That doesn't mean jettisoning. That doesn't mean jettisoning the idea of mental causation, but it means leavening the idea of mental causation with the fact that there are many, many experiences that we 
have to go through, natural experiences that alter outcomes in the same way that mass alters the effects of gravity. Doesn't mean gravity's not there, but it's going to be experienced very differently here on Earth than on Jupiter or on the moon, for example. And I think the New Thought movement needs to do a better job of arriving at what might be called a theology of suffering, of understanding that there are these other intervening forces in life, which doesn't detract from the idea of mental causation, but I think it helps bring it to people's lives in a way that's more relatable to the actual frictions that they have to deal with. And I think that that movement, which I love, needs to undergo a kind of maturation. As far as the naysayers and the critics, there's almost no reaching them. You know, we have to embark on this search ourselves. But that also means that we don't have to believe that something is true because it's been repeated or because it's been framed in a particularly elegant way. We determine it's true by verifying it in our own experience. Yeah. And, you know, this really, I love that we're talking about this because when I when I read through your book, it's like we talked about during the break. I, I love getting to the part, which I'd love for you to share t- today, um, the uh, um, seeing in the dark. Because I love that because when I think about myself and other people that I know, you know, there's been a lot of darkness in our lives, but how is it that I'm called the, uh, I'm called, my optimism has been called the Oprah of Disney. So, but nobody knows where I've come from. And there's always a question about that. And I was so interested in the interview you did with David Lynch about this. Can you share a little bit of that? Sure. Um, David is a perfect example of what you're referencing. He, He continually makes the point that in order to explore dark subject matter, it doesn't mean you need to be in the basement, so to speak. It doesn't mean you need to be mired in negativity or violence or what have you. David is able to look at areas of life that are fractious, that are violent, and bring beauty out of them. And I think for a lot of us, friction is a refining element in life. There's a very intimate relationship between friction and creativity. There's a very intimate relationship between tragedy and excellence. And I think we often like to play a kind of mental game with ourselves, and it might be a lot more than just a mental game. It might be actual reality. If you could go back and change something in your life, reverse a regret, reverse a tragedy, what would it be? Now, part of a different discussion, but it could be that we're doing that all the time. If our psyches travel among different intersections of time, it could be at each moment we're experiencing a whole different sense of past, present, future, so-called. But leaving that aside, if a person were to reverse tragedy or suffering in his or her past, it could amount to reversing the very things that have made us mature beings today. And so I'm very careful about saying, what do I regret? What would I like to reverse? Even frankly, what advice would I like to give to a younger self? Well, the missteps that I made when I was younger, falling in with the wrong people, doing things that were self-destructive, I hope, I hope have created parts of myself that I'm, I'm proudest of today. Refinement very frequently comes from friction. I'm totally right there with you. I know I would not be here talking with you 
or even be able to hold a conversation with you if everything that has happened in my life didn't lead me to this moment. I know that now, Exactly. you know, whether it's stuttering as a teenager, stuttering taught me how to ask really good questions. You know, I mean, we do live in a place and I love what you just said. If there was such a thing as a magic wand, this idea of resentment and regret for something that we cannot alter, it's for whatever reason, it happened in the world, you may be part of it. It gets people stuck. And I wanted to ask you this question. I'm not opposed to people stuck. And every time I say that, I know I'm going to get a million emails. Our stuckness sometimes has a real purpose. Mine did, just like my illness did. I want to talk about, in these last minutes we have left, how you learn to stop worrying because that needs to be a message for where we're sitting right now. Well, I've struggled with anxiety my entire life. Uh, I don't think I've ever been depressed for more than an afternoon. That's never been a problem, but anxiety has been a persistent problem. One of the things that helped me get to a better place and that I encourage everyone to consider is the importance of getting away from cruel people in your life. We have no idea how great a toll that takes on our psyches, how that makes us feel afraid, angry, hostile, worried. We all have relationships, including so-called friendships, including family situations, neighbor situations, intimate situations, where we are burdened under the brunt of cruelty. People might bully us, direct nasty jokes at us, make subtle comments that are constantly meant to put us down and make us feel worthless. And I believe that our spiritual and therapeutic culture does far too little to talk about the problem of human cruelty. We're often told that solutions have to come from within. Well, solutions also have to come from our feet and where we go and who we dwell with. And I really want people to consider cutting ties immediately, totally, and without looking backwards with cruel people in their lives. We often don't do it because we think, oh, the consequences are going to be too great. I can't. And there may be truth to that sometimes. And that's a valid concern. But be sure that you're not using that truth as an excuse to just remain stuck in the status quo. And I have personally found that the consequences are usually nowhere near as bad as we think. In fact, sometimes they're not even anything more than a ripple. We underestimate the power that we have to get away from cruel people. And that can be the greatest tonic to a person's existence. I have, I agree with you. I have never found when I look back at those decisions I've made and, and, and when I mentor and coach other people, I have never found to date, let me say to date or yet, I've never found a situation where the consequence of leaving that cruel person was greater than the consequences staying. I've never been able to find that. And, you know, when you're around that energy, and I'm going to talk energy because I do believe everything is energy. Now we're going to get real new thoughty, but I do believe everything is energy. I believed it from a very young age. And 
there's an energy that happens from one person to the other. But when you're talking about cruel people, it is a complete body, mind, spirit, soul virus. Yes. And, and I'm really glad you put it that way, because I think that we're very often told, well, pray for the person, light a candle, light incense, do whatever you can to, to, to show compassion for the person. And, and if that works, then I'm first in line to, to, to applaud it. But I think that you're absolutely correct, that there is an exchange of energy between people. However, one understands that, one can understand that metaphorically, put it however you wish. But there is an exchange of energy between people. And when you're in an atmosphere that you feel is absolutely depleting, listen to that and if at all possible, get away. And if not possible, for whatever reason, maybe it's economic, maybe it's job related, vow internally that you will get away physically at the first possible opportunity and mean it. And don't tell anybody what you're doing. Don't talk to anybody about it. There's a great power in silence. Frequently, when we share things with people, they will use those revelations or confessions against us. Frequently, we di we dilute our resolve by sharing things with people. You don't you you just keep your own exquisite privacy. You know, you understand. If somebody's bullying you, you don't need to confront them. You need to get away from them. And if you can't get away for just reasons that are absolutely insurmountable, vow to get away at the first possible moment and don't tell them what you're doing because every bully has the same weapon which is plausible denial you'll be told yeah. oh it's all in your head you're too sensitive you're being too defensive no one's too sensitive sensitive sensitivity is part of our birthright as human beings we're feeling beings i'm going to do an i'm getting ready to do an upcoming series because a large part of my background is background is corporate you know i was a corporate executive before i had an awakening and but I absolutely, I absolutely am revolting against the term that a person from the millennial generation created, and it's harming that generation, and it's not true. It's called quiet quitting. And that term is doing more harm to categorize a group of people, and it's not true. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about how quickly two words mitch two words categorize millions of people and how those two words now are flipped against right this is what we're talking about today and then we're scratching our heads oh my gosh why are people leaving no they're not quietly quitting they're quitting loudly yeah. okay my generation <laughs> quietly quit we, we are the people that are like, you just fired us. 1992 happened. We job security. Now you don't. But just two words in our culture are, are, are defining a generation and an action that is so not true. And yes. like you said, is being used against them. Right. Terms in our society very often come to mean they're opposite. So several years ago, woke meant something good. Now woke is supposed to mean something bad. And this happens over and over. Um, I, I think that we have to free ourselves 
from some of these terms that are just grossly overused. I don't think there's anyone in America at this point who has not been accused of being a narcissist. That's the term of choice in our culture today. Oh you know, somebody gosh. cuts me off in traffic and they're a narcissist. Oh and you gosh. know, it's it's we 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 get into these 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 kind of slang terms that are supposed to categorize whole swaths of life and the individual doesn't have any need to abide by any of that stuff or be afraid of being called it. Uh, I, I think the shorthand terms become epithets that put people in a box. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I we did a whole series on narcissistic personality disorder because, again, I revolted against my own profession. And I said, stop using the term. There is a yes. real disorder. And, and I made the statement. I said, you know what we just did? We gave, we truly gave the people that have narcissistic personality disorder a real thing, a real sociopathic thing. They are smiling now because now they can hide amongst a term that is being thrown around for anybody that takes care of themselves. You nailed it. You nailed it. And 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 it is an important term in a clinical sense. It is a real problem. It's a very serious problem. But it's not something that I call my neighbor Mike because you know he he didn't take in my mail for me or something. And and I do find that it's become grossly overused. And yes, it conceals the actual problem. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I heard I heard I heard somebody out shopping call the other person a narcissist for getting her nails done. And I'm like, OK, I preposterous. Gotta... Yeah. Uh, and it and it and it doesn't mean selfish. And it doesn't, it doesn't. you know, it's a it's a serious disorder and we ought to use it carefully. It Just is. like the word cult, for example. Cult doesn't mean a group that I find weird. Cult doesn't mean weird. It no, means it abusive doesn't. in the current you know colloquial language. And it's not like we have to get rid of the term, but use it carefully. Just use it carefully. Mitch, I want to thank you for today for joining me. My gosh, this hour went very uh, by very quickly. Uh, two things. I'd love, again, to know how to get a copy of the book. Manzanita, thank you for working with Linda to set this up. How do we find out about you? And I'd love to know your personal message, what you'd like to leave us with today. Oh, thank you so much. The hour did go quick. Uh, the book is available uh, in paperback, digital, and audio. You can buy it on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. I appreciate your shout out to Manzanita at Inner Tradition. She's a wonderful publicist and friend. And uh, the final message I would like to leave people is one word, experiment, experiment. It's all yours. It's all yours to try and let nobody put you in a box. Wow. That's the stuff that possibilities are made of. Mitch, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all. You're the best audience on the planet. And I know, Jerry, you're still texting me about uh, 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 AMS, American Hearts. We're going to do something about it, but I just need to give it a little time to kind of finish. Um, thank Benny. Thank you, Benny, for pushing all the right buttons. And thank you, guys. You're the best audience on the planet. Thank you so much. Mitch, make it happen as usual. We'll see you all next time.